<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I've mentioned a few times, I think, this week that uh, my new book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class, is out. I say that not because I'm trying to sell another book. Although, you know, I don't object to that, but I say that because I think that we are really at this moment at a real critical turning point. And I'm just going to riff on this for a minute and then, um, and then I'll turn it over to your calls. But here's how it works. Oligarchy is when a government essentially disconnects itself from the people. When a government starts work, has been seized by oligarchs, by the very wealthy, and begins working exclusively for the very wealthy and ignoring the needs and desires of the average working person. And the result of that is widespread cynicism and discontent with the political system. You know, follow along with this, right? So, therefore, oligarchies are very unstable forms of government. The way that we know that America has become an oligarchy, we're in this little moment, like the South was in the late 1850s, like the entire country was in the late 1920s, we're in this moment. The way that we know that we've become an oligarchy is that the desires of the average American are not translated into legislation. Gillens and Page did this amazing study that was published in 2014 that found that before the Reagan revolution, on average, when people wanted things, they got made into law. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, long-term unemployment, um, you know, educational benefits, housing supports, food stamps, you name it. People wanted it, it got made into law before Reagan. Post-Reagan revolution, what the average person wants gets ignored. And they're figuring it out. When Trump came along and said, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm gonna, I, you know, it's the game is rigged, right? I'll fix that. Don't worry. We're gonna raise taxes on rich people. We're gonna give everyone health care, and we're gonna bring all those factories back to the United States." He was lying through his teeth, but what he was pointing out is that we are now an oligarchy. And weirdly enough, you know, 70 million Americans put an oligarch in the White House. The result was predictable. But here's the problem: 
Oligarchies are unstable because they are not popular governments. In other words, they are not supported by the, by the majority of people. By popular, I don't mean you know, opinion ratings. I'm talking about they, they don't reflect the popular desires, the, the desires of most people. And therefore, oligarchies, typically within a single generation, and we're about 15, 20 years into this one in a big way, oligarchies typically flip in one of two directions. Either the people take back their government and the oligarchy gets overthrown. And that's what happened in the United States in, in 1860, although it took a civil war to do it. And that's what happened in the 1930s, although it took you know, the Great Depression and World War II to do it. But, and, and, and the will of an extraordinary leader like Franklin Roosevelt. So either they the people rise up and reject the oligarchs and the oligarchy, or the oligarchs decide that the only way to protect their power and wealth is to turn the nation into a police state. And that's what you're seeing in Hungary right now. Poland is moving in that direction. Russia has gone in that direction. Uh, the Philippines are going in that direction. Uh, Venezuela has gone in that direction. Brazil is moving in that direction. Turkey has gone in that direction. Egypt has gone in that direction. Out of democracy into a police state. And we damn near went in that direction. Had Donald Trump succeeded in hanging out of the White House, we would be now entering a police state phase. And that's why it's so critical that we restore popular government. That is government that does what the majority of the people want. And the Republicans are fighting this tooth and nail, and so are a few of the Democrats. I mean, we just we saw this in this big debate about the COVID relief bill. Oh, yeah, let's means test the thing. Yeah, okay, they, the Democrats went along with that. It's a crazy idea. Let's not give people $2,000. Let, let's give them $1,400. You know, you add that to the $600, and, you know, we can say it's $2,000. You know, in England, they're giving people, like, several thousand dollars every single month and not just the united kingdom i mean this is happening pretty much every developed country in the world is supporting their unemployed people through this crisis and we're doing a pitiful job of this you know 40 years of republicans gutting our unemployment laws and rules and and payment schedules and everything else mostly at the state level although federal long-term unemployment has been cut in half that happened during the Bush administration. We have to return popular government. And that's why I wrote this book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, and that's why I think it's so important, whether you read the book or not. I think I've given you enough of the message. You don't need to buy the book. If you want the documentation and the backup, it's there. But just start telling people, this is a critical time. And we've got to end the filibuster so that the Biden administration and Democrats in the House and Senate can actually get some things done. If you want to call your senators about ending the filibuster, the number is 202-224-3121. Write it down. Put it on your refrigerator. <laughs> call them regularly. Be nice. People answering the phone have no power. All they can do is communicate your message. And they will communicate it in two or three words. So be concise. When you call, just say, I support ending the filibuster. Please tell Senator so-and-so that. Okay, 
All that said, let's start picking up your phone calls here. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's up? Thank you, Tom. The Honorable Tom, the prophet of democracy, truth, justice, and the American way. Also, make sure you call Joe Manchin. Make sure you call Joe Manchin office because you know he's holding up. So he needs to pick a side. He's either with the Democrats or he against them. And I think if he does not come right. to, he needs to be primary and just send him over to the Republicans. You know, we don't need him. But Tom, to your point, man, asking for a sweeping economical and social change is not demonizing the rich. Okay, the rich are getting richer in this pandemic, and they continue to monopolize the point of progress, and they continue to monopolize benefits that help themselves. You know, and the last president that demonized the rich was FDR. He called them manufacturer of wealth, and he, he gave them mm-hmm. political power to, to enact a lot of different things that help people today. You know, so I say to Joe Biden, be an FBI president. Don't be an LBJ. The American people need that. And survey and study has shown that the American people need a progressive and FBI type of president right now. Study shows it. Oh, history shows it. Um, You know, when governments can't meet the needs of their people, the people rebel. The people, you know, essentially rise up and, and, and the government either changes or it squashes the people. You're watching the government squash the people right now in Russia, in Belarus. In Belarus. Uh, there's one other country where there's massive protests going on right now. And, Poland, in and, Poland, everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, against Duda. Yeah, you're right. And, and, and these guys, you know, Trump and all these other autocrats, they're simply following the playbook that, that was, you know, most com- comprehensively laid out step by step over a 10-year period in Hungary by Viktor Orban. That's why I devoted an entire chapter in this book to Viktor Orban and what he did in Hungary, because Trump was literally following step by step his playbook, which started with Orban saying, we need to build a wall on the southern border of Hungary to keep out the Syrian refugees. Those brown people from the south are coming. And he actually won the campaign on that and then built the damn wall. He actually did it. Omar, thank you for the call. Amen. The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. In this book, I trace the history of the struggle against oligarchy from America's founding to the United States' war with the feudal confederacy to President Franklin Roosevelt's struggle against economic royalists who wanted to block the New Deal. In each of those cases, the oligarchs lost the battle. But with increasing right-wing control, we're at a crisis point. Want to know more? You can sign up for virtual book events. The Books and Books virtual event in conversation with David Corden is Tuesday, February 9th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. The links are all over at TomHartman.com. Donald in Portland. Hey, Donald, what's up? Good morning. I think we should put Trump and all of the people that were named as being on the a January 5th meeting at the Trump Hotel on the no-fly list and revoke their passports as they are all risk flights, flight risks. I think first we need to find out what the hell happened in that meeting, who was there, and whether they were actually plotting the overthrow of the government of the United States. Um, you know, I, I agree with your sentiment broadly. And a lot of these people who showed up at the Capitol are discovering that they are now on the no-fly list. They are, you know, they're terrorists. Um, but I, I, I totally get it. Uh, have you seen 
Donald, have you seen anything recently in the press about uh, that meeting? I, it seems to have just completely dropped off the radar screen. Well, I agree that it has not gotten the attention that it needs, but uh, I've seen, you know, Flynn and uh, Tuberville. Tuberville denied it, and then he showed up in pictures that were taken there, so that doesn't surprise right. me. But anyway, uh, uh, there, there's a number of name people. I think, you know, if you just happen to pick up three or four of the top people that were there, I think some of the uh, Uday and Kuse Trump were there, mm. and, uh, you know, yep. just clipped their wings. We saw how successful, I think anyway, that removing Trump from the social media was to to clip his visual wings. I think this way we should clip his uh, transportation and moving around wings. And I'd get barring from Amtrak, too, in case any of them would think they could run down from Washington to Georgia on the Crescent Limited or something. And then, uh, you know, then they'd have to get their buddies to, to pungle up for a private airplane. Or then they'd have to come up with some yeah. other means to move well, around. Which, which I, they I could probably do. But I but I get your sentiment, Donald, and I do not disagree with it at all. I, 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 I broadly endorse it. And we need to find out what the hell happened in that meeting. Donald, thank you for the call. Cliff in Santa Clarita, California. Hey, Cliff, what's up? Uh, hey, now. Thank you. Did you say ni hao? I said hey, now. Oh, hey, now. I thought that we, I thought you were saying hello in Mandarin. Uh, my my sister-in-law is Chinese. And I, anyway, uh, what's up, Cliff? If I did, it was purely accidental. All right, Tom, you and I know there's going to be many Democrats over the next four years. They're going to have uh, many disagreements with President Biden, whether he's not progressive enough or whatever. Uh, um, and, and you and I discussed Tom Vilsack last week already. I mean, there's already an issue. Mm -hmm. And I expect this will be a recurring narrative. However, Tom, speaking for myself, if nothing else gets done that I'm totally on board with, the decision to stop our involvement in that catastrophe that is Yemen, it'll make it all worthwhile for me, man. That was just such great news. But now yeah. we need to help the people of Yemen prevent further starvation and disease and poverty and you know, help lift those people up. But I'm just I'm yeah. really thrilled at that decision. Yeah, I, I am with you, and I, and I hope it actually stops the war. I mean, Saudi Arabia has vast resources, and there's lots of people willing to sell them weapons, and they may well continue the war. Um, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Biden is talking about we're, we're granting basically official recognition to the government in Yemen, um, sending an envoy over there. I mean, there's things we can do to disrupt what Saudi Arabia is all about. And, and we can also start sending aid into Yemen. And I'm with you, Cliff. It needs yeah. to go. I, you've got millions of people who are literally starving to death as you and I are talking right now. Cliff, thank you so much for the call. We'll be right back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. 
We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Our book club book today is Last Boat Out of Shanghai by Helen Zia, the subtitle The Epic Story of the Chinese Who Fled Mao's Revolution. This is from the prologue, Shanghai, May 4th, 1949. Bing sat up straight in the pedicab, gripping the hard seat as the driver cursed and spat. She watched with alarm as his feet, clad in sandals cut from old tires, seemed to slow to a snail's pace just when she most needed speed. This stylish-looking young woman had imagined that her last hours in Shanghai would be spent waving farewell from a ship's deck, envious onlookers below as a river breeze gently lifted her dark hair, just as she'd seen in the movies. After all, she was about to leave China's biggest, most glamorous, and most notorious city. But now, with the imminent threat of a violent communist revolution, she was running away again, along with half the city's population, it seemed. And instead of standing at the rail, exchanging smiles with the ship's other passengers, she was stuck in traffic, terrified that she wouldn't reach the Shanghai Hongkuo Wharf in time. That would spell disaster. She lurched forward as the pedicab driver stood on the pedals of his three-wheeled cycle and came to a stop. Around her was a sea of other pedicabs, rickshaws, cars, buses, carts, and trucks, all screeching and honking, their drivers yelling every manner of obscenity. The cacophony reverberated against the walls of the stone and concrete canyon of Nanjing Road. Bing was no stranger to Shanghai's mayhem, but she'd never seen anything quite like this. Of all times to be stuck in such bedlam, on the very day she had to get to the riverfront, the date set for her departure from this desperate city. She'd sewn her floral print quipois for this special occasion. Each careful stitch had captured her growing anticipation. With her oval face, big eyes, and full red lips all crowned by a tiara of black permanent waves, the 20-year-old might have been mistaken for a coy Shanghai poster girl, but for the panic in her eyes. Like her, everyone in Shanghai seemed to be in a frenzy to escape, to use any means to get away from the impending arrival of the communists. But unlike those who were still clamoring for a seat to anywhere, Bing was one of the lucky ones. She possessed a precious one-way ticket out on a ship to America. Finally, the driver managed to break through the crush. He harangued everyone in his path, shouting, Move along, you worthless male mule scrotum, smellier than pig farts. She didn't blink at his choice of words, which came as naturally as breathing on Shanghai's streets. She didn't care as long as she got to the wharf. The ship's smokestacks came into view just past the stately Astor House Hotel and the towering 19-story Broadway Mansion's apartments, where the Xinjiang Creek meets the bend of the Waihangpu River the last major tributary of the mighty Yangtze River before it joins the East China Sea. 
massive granite buildings, all in European style, lined the signature waterfront boulevard and docks. To the foreigners, this prime section of waterfront was known as the Bund, from a Hindustani word meaning embankment. The Chinese called it Waitan, meaning outside or foreign shore, a reference to the foreigners who once ruled this proud imperialist showcase of Shanghai. British and American businessmen had wrested away the best sections of the port city with the full support of the government. Land and sovereignty had been ripped from China, spoils of the opium wars that had forced the narcotic onto China 100 years before. Everything about these monuments to international capitalists and pale big noses seemed foreign, including the British Big Ben chime of the giant clock tower over the customs house. Soon it would be up to the communists to decide what would follow, what would happen to these grand stone edifices. Shanghai was China's most modern, populist, and cosmopolitan city. One of the leading metropolises of the world, the Paris of the Orient was also home to tens of thousands of foreigners who were despised as imperialists by the Communist Party and its leader, Mao Zedong. The city was the launching point for major inland routes and international traffic, whether by boat, plane, train, or wooden cart, making it the epicenter for the massive exodus in the late 1940s. Stoked by the anticipated communist victory over the nationalist government headed by Chiang Kai-shek, panic and terror had first infected the wealthiest, most educated, and most privileged classes and sent them running in what they fully expected to be a brief exile. It was assumed that the communists would target the rich and the pampered in the same way that the Bolsheviks had gone after the czarist white Russians, many of whom had come to Shanghai as refugees from that 1917 revolution. No one knows precisely how many people fled Shanghai during the early years of the Communist Revolution. Scholars and journalists have estimated that more than a million people set off from or through that port city. Many of those who ran for the exits belonged to the city's capitalist and middle classes, who presumably had the most to lose under the Communists. These two groups comprised about 5% and 20%, respectively, of the city's 6 million residents, or about 1.5 million people. On the other hand, the remaining 4.5 million who made up Shanghai's majority saw no need to escape. They included Shanghai's industrial workers, coolies, drivers, the destitute. But it was not only members of the upper classes who fled. They were joined by old regime loyalists, from high nationalist government officials to lowly foot soldiers, as well as those who simply got caught up in the frenzy or were especially fearful. Unfortunately, there are no records of the exodus since the retreating nationalists destroyed as many documents as they could, while the incoming communists inherited a country in such disarray that no accounting to the departures is known to have taken place. Last Boat Out of Shanghai by Helen Zia. Jerry in San Francisco. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. What's on my mind? I don't know if you have uh, saw this footage on CNN uh, during the insurrection. It only lasted a few seconds, but it was really powerful to me after being a teacher and an administrator in public schools for so many years. This young man looked into the camera in tears and screamed, You made me! You made me! And uh, did you see I, that? Uh, no, and I don't understand what, what the, the meaning of that is. Well, it... For me, and again, as being an educator for so many years, dealing with uh, a lot of disaffected youth, people who uh, find school... He, he was one of, one, of the, one of the people who was storming the Capitol? Right, except he wasn't storming. He was just standing in front of the camera. It was, it was an amazing shot uh -huh. as these 
flags the uh, and and people tripping over each other and people going up the steps he was mm-hmm. standing looking into the camera and it just reminded me of so many young people who um really are not connected to anything when they're in high school i spent most of my years in in high school and uh going through life and just being just being suckers for consumer capitalism for the belief that the individual does it does it all you don't need anybody else and certainly uh the QAnon um mm. conspiracy, yeah, conspiracy theories, theories in just, general yeah yeah and it just makes you just ripe when you don't know you know how your physical world works the, uh, understanding social relations or being able to have enough knowledge to be able to enter the the debate in humanities and that type of thing so that you you really get a sense of having that kind of knowledge that you're not going to be susceptible as much to uh to that kind of thing but but we see so many kids sleepwalking through 13 years of school and they just view it as a as you know at the when they get the diploma it's like a vaccination that you'll never have to do this again and that somehow that'll translate into cash or that you've been in prison for 13 years and now you've been released and now you can start your life. And so yeah. I just, uh, it's just kind of a plea to, to adults to remind young people that really the main goal is to, in your life is to create things of value and, and that takes hard work and yeah. discipline. And, yeah, uh, no, I get it, and, and, I, and I'm totally with you, Jerry. There is a piece in today's Washington Post about a group called Parents for Peace. Uh, it's uh, uh-huh. a little volunteer group of uh, 10 people who are trained in how to deprogram people out of cults. And they're getting uh-huh. overwhelmed with calls from people who want to deprogram their kids out of QAnon. Jerry, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Uh, Charlie in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Charlie, what's up? Well, I'm uh, very exasperated by the media. Um, and frankly, uh, you missed this, too, as far as I think is... Uh, this this whole issue of whether the Senate voted for, on the constitutionality of an impeachment trial, when in actuality they only uh, voted whether to table the argument till later, and it's That's being correct. it's being it's being quoted constantly as if they made that, you know, and, and saying that the impeachment is is therefore moot. And, you know, it's constantly being referred to as... Well, no, it was 55 to 45 saying that the, that the, uh, the way the press has been portraying it, it was 55 to 45 saying that it is constitutional to have this, this trial after the impeachment has happened. Um, I, you know, I, it's, you're right, it was, it, was a, it was a procedural motion by and large that, was, that shot the whole thing down. Um, but, you know, the, I think the insane irony of it, Charlie, is that... Trump was impeached while he was still in office. And the House was ready to present that to the Senate for a trial. And Mitch McConnell said, no, no, let us wait two or two and a half weeks until Donald Trump is no longer in office, and then we can have the trial. And then, so they waited, because Mitch McConnell was running the Senate at the time. So they waited a couple of weeks, Trump leaves office, they start the trial, and then Mitch McConnell comes forward and says, you know, he's not in office anymore. We can't have the trial because he's not in office. It's insane. Yeah, I I agree, but still, it's being quoted in the you know as if they voted on the constitutionality. Constantly, it's being referred to when they yeah. when they try to say that the that the uh, impeachment is going to be moot. You know. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it wasn't. It, it, yeah, it was not. I mean, this was basically, uh, you know, which side are you on? Uh, what, what's the old song? You know, which side are you on, boy? You know, the old union organizing song. Um, and it, it's the, the question, you know, are, are these Republicans in the United States Senate on the side of Donald Trump, a criminal, uh, and a, a president who's been impeached twice, a man who told over 30,000 lies while he was in office, a man who led a, an attempt to, to bring down the republic and install a strongman dictatorship instead of a democratic republic. Are they on that side? Or are they on the side of America, on the side of 240 years of more or less democracy, you know, sort of gradually getting better over the years, step by step? Um, you know, and, and 45 of the 50 Republicans in the Senate said, no, we're on the side of the fascists. We're, we're with them. And I think that that's just horrifying. Charlie, thank you for the call. We'll be back with uh, more of your calls here on the Tom Hartman program. Talk media for the rest of us. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. By the way, I've got a new op-ed out calling for a new 74% top tax bracket. It's at TomHartman.Medium.com. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And uh, William in Long Beach, Washington. Hey, William, what's up? Hi, Tom. I want to know yes, when Reality Winner will be released. That's a damn good question. It, yeah, it's humiliating. It's, it's humiliating. Rittenhouse, Skip Bale, brown shirts and white collars have been, uh, you know, uh, exonerated, and she and there's uh, allegations of sexual assault on her. It's humiliating. It's insulting. It's cruel. This should have been the first order of business on, on uh, Biden's agenda. I mean, this was the original anti-Trumper. Her yeah. efforts, I mean, streamlined the way for the Mueller report. You've read so much. I've read right. it. And, and it, it, she, 
person should not be she, not only not have to endure, but not be humiliated after the fact by watching all her efforts thrown down the drain. It is cruel. Yeah, I, it is incredibly I am, cruel. I am completely with you, William. And 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 I would, you know, I think that reality winner's case needs to be brought up, and it needs to be brought up more often. Um, thank you very be- much. I, you know, amen. I, oop, I'm sorry. I is a slight delay here. Um, uh, we'll we'll continue the conversation. Mike in Lameda, California. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom. Just wanted to drop my two pennies worth in on that conversation from earlier the week about what is freedom. And mm-hmm. I see it as freedom to do what? Because without responsibility, it's either license or even anarchy. And I think mm-hmm. the best illustration for that I've experienced is in how football is played in Britain and in the United States. Now, they're basically the same game, except a while back in America, we legalized the forward pass, and American football, of course, it stops every few seconds. But at the same time, there's a very great difference in the way the crowds deal with the situation. About the time Reagan was coming in, this fad grew up in America where the crowd would try to make a bunch of noise and drown out the signals of the opposing players. And Mm -hmm. it even got to be celebrated in Seattle. They call it the 12th man. So they're endorsing the idea of not having a fair game, of having an unequal match. In Mm -hmm. Britain, on the other hand, when the the, the rugby match, when a penalty kick uh, is coming up, instead of the the jumbotron saying make noise it says respect the kicker and the whole stadium 70,000 people goes dead silent you could hear a pin drop because they want their freedom to make noise to be abated in fair uh, in the interest of a fair match right so the freedom of watching a a fair game is more important than the freedom of being obnoxious or making noise that's fascinating mike i didn't know that uh that's absolutely fascinating thank you very much i I appreciate the call michael in calvert county maryland hey michael what's on your mind yes um thanks for taking my call hey tom i i'm calling because um number one i i heard a speak i heard a guy talk about he wished first thing biden do was one thing but I would wish that Biden, when he came in, I know I appreciate what he's doing as far as the money and everything, but I really wish he, that he had some way of having the government, governor or government to to check the hospitals. I, I as a as a black man, I you know this disparities of the deaths with the COVID nineteen. Um, I myself, I went into my doctor's office not too long ago, and I see when I when I go into the doctor's office and I see Fox Fox News on, I panic. You know, I it's, it's just that oh I I feel like I wish that Biden would find a way to have these hospitals checked. You know, Dr. King didn't die from the shooting. Dr. King was killed in the hospital. I look at the hospitals as a perfect storm. Where you can't come in, no one can monitor what's going on in there, you know. And and I see that people showed me at the Capitol how far they would go for this man. And I just feel so I feel so helpless. I've seen a man coming for four years, and part of those his last years when he weaponized this virus for a year, you know. He and he bragged on that he mm-hmm. had, they had good genes. Certain people had good genes. Certain people didn't. I, you know, we went through a civil war, we went through restoration, and we went to the um, the rights, human rights. 
but I see all this going on like it's one it's all three going on at one time um I see people like uh there was a uh, it was a, a part about a, a, a store in Florida where someone went in and the, and the cashiers all of them didn't have masks on. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you they talk about the civil war that's going on, but Tom, the civil war is on. You know, when I see you walking out here and you come in place and you're refusing to wear masks, I I see you carrying a weapon. I don't care who you are, I see the weapon. Yeah. I look at you know. Well, and under, under the law, that you know, if it. If you breathe, you know, if somebody's breathing on you without a mask, that could be considered and should be, in my opinion, considered assault, Michael. Yes. Yes, Tom. And, Tom, I just want to say this. Also, you know, in the past when they had hangings, when they were hangers, they would come and they would have social gatherings, take pictures, even take parts if necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, I look I've at seen the pictures. What is the difference between that and like this Super Bowl and stuff that we're doing now where people are just deliberately, you know, this, this, this ex-president, he just took his people, he took them to where, the, where our Native Americans was. He took them to Tulsa. He took them to the worst places we wanted them to be. And he would take them yeah. there. He, he spread that virus. Well, of course, everybody knows that. But, Tom, it's, um, I, I thank you for taking my call, but I just wish that we had some kind of way to check into these hospitals because mm-hmm. I, you know, and and they tell you know they 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 tell us no one has died since the vaccine, but they was telling us also no, they're, they're, dying because they're not of saying COVID. that, right? You know, they were right? No, it, it, the, the vaccine COVID. reduces the reduces your died. probability of dying. So, but, you know, Michael, I, I yeah, yes, uh, I. It's a tough one. I, 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 it's a really tough one. In fact, uh, let me toss this to Kenyatta. Maybe he has some thoughts on it. Michael, thank you for the call. Kenyatta, you're on the air in hey, Los Tom, Angeles. I don't, uh, thank you. I, I really don't have any thoughts on that particular issue because I was actually calling uh, to go somewhere else, and I'll be as uh, okay, go for it. as possible. Um, you know, I have a a thought about the impending impeachment trial. I agree with it. I think that it should happen, but I have a concern. And that concern is that, you know, Donald Trump has quoted P.T. Barnum many times uh, with regards to, I don't care what they say about me as long as you spell my name right and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, he's been essentially silenced by the media. uh, And I think that this is going to give him a great big microphone. I can see the gaggles after he, after the trials, and this is going to give him exactly what he wants since he's left office. Doesn't there isn't a day that goes by that the media isn't talking about him? And what I would like for him to do, and the media to to be complicit in, is for him to just go away and disappear in oblivion forever. That's my comment. And then I had a question for you. My question is, but, but why is it- if I if I can push before we 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 have a minute or so here, Kenyatta. Um, if he were to just go away, if we were basically to say, okay, we're going to, you know, like, uh, uh, who was it who, uh, oh, uh, uh, the, you know, uh, the former governor of South Carolina um, said, uh, you know, why don't you just move on, right? If we were to do that, it basically says to any future president who wants to try to overthrow the American Republic, don't worry, you'll get, a, you'll get, you'll get away scot-free if we just do what Nikki Haley said. No, and I, Tom, I understand that, and that's the conundrum. Uh, as, yeah. as I yeah. mentioned, I, 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 I absolutely support, I mean, you, you know, the impeachment, uh, it's, he deserves it, right. and, and hopefully he'll be convicted. But uh, 
Uh, I'm just saying that at the same, it's a, it's a, it's a dual-edged sword is what I'm trying to get yeah, at. I, I, I feel um, the same way. So we're down to one minute, Kenyatta. What's, what's your question? Okay. My question is this. If Donald Trump, and he was uh, guilty of uh, inciting an insurrection, there are laws all over the, the United States where if you are the getaway driver in a bank robbery and someone gets killed in that bank robbery, you are an accessory to murder. I'd like to know why Donald Trump isn't being brought up on murder charge. I don't. I, I agree. And, and in fact, one of the people that Donald Trump executed a couple of weeks ago was literally the getaway driver. He you know, had nothing to do with the murder. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, Trump is complicit, not just in the, in the five deaths in the Capitol, but also in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans. I've been working on an op-ed about this, you know, Donald Trump mass murderer. Uh, he, you know, he, I, and I laid it out, you know, how on the, the whole, you know, April 7th thing. I, I think he should be held to account for it. And, and we need to, you know, hold a trial for mass murder for, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing. Kenyatta, you always cut right to the essence of it. I appreciate it. I love reading your stuff over at opednews.com. Thank you so much for the call. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's talk media for the sane among us. Yes, there's still some of us here. Our book today is Just Another N-Word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox, His Life in the Black Panther Party. This is from Chapter 5, page 47. The chapter is titled, Use What You Got to Get What You Need. Before we entered into a direct relationship with the Panthers, our group had wanted to prove our worthiness by our actions. Since that was no longer in question, contact was made and a rendezvous fixed to meet at Huey's Pad on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. I don't remember much about that first gathering, other than meeting David Hilliard, the Panther Party's chief of staff for the first time. The only thing that stands out in my memory is a question from Huey as we were sipping coffee. He asked if I didn't think it better to be properly equipped before going into action. He suggested it was best to first rip off the necessary funds to get everything we needed in advance of launching a major effort. I had practically memorized his essay, The Correct Handling of a Revolution, in which he spoke of teaching by example. And so I blurted out the first thing that came to mind, which was, use what you got to get what you need. After a long, hot summer of 1967, with the rebellions in Newark, Detroit, and elsewhere, we felt that our preparations had, at least, put us on the same level as the rest of the country, and that the revolution would not pass us by. Our San Francisco group started attending and participating in any and all functions relevant to black people, and we tried to get to know everyone in our area associated with the struggle. We also continued our community meetings. News of the death of Che Guevara in October of that year had us walking around in a stupor for a while, and although it came as a severe blow to the international struggle for freedom and justice of all people, we were proud to be among those who had responded to his battle cry and had picked up the fallen arms. Huey asked if we would conduct a meeting on Hunter's Point for him. He was supposed to go, but something had come up and he couldn't make it. We were honored that he thought enough of us to ask, and we were more than enthusiastic to do whatever he wanted. It was at that meeting that we had a new surprising experience. We met our first resistance in the form of Adam Rogers. He was supposed to have been the biggest, baddest N-word on Hunter's point, but when we encountered him, he came across like an Uncle Tom. He seemed to be impressed with our firearms demonstration, but he was violently against the idea of black people arming themselves for self-defense. He was convinced that would increase repression, even though history proved him wrong. 
When we examine the history of repression of black people, the only time there was significant decline in police violence and murders perpetrated against blacks was precisely the period when blacks were organized and had access to guns. Given the wave of terror and violence against blacks that continues to sweep the country, I truly believe there is a lesson to be learned from that fact. Rogers was one of the wounded in the Hunter's Point Rebellion of the year before, and a photograph of him had been used by the news media to illustrate articles on the riots that broke out following the killing of a black teenager by police that September. Because of that, we were even more surprised by his reaction. It was not until later that we discovered that the administration of San Francisco Mayor Joseph Alito had sent in money after the rebellion and had bought off the so-called bad N-words. The same technique was used from coast to coast. Despite Rogers, most everyone seemed to like what we had to say and really related to the firearms demonstration. Several people wanted to take courses in handling weapons, and so I fixed a rendezvous for the following Saturday at the parking lot of the abandoned shopping center right on top of Hunter's Point. The next day I arrived at the point at 7 in the morning in order to get set up before people began to gather. There wasn't going to be any target practice, but I would be firing a few shots in the air by way of demonstration. I knew that would pose no problem as far as the police were concerned. Due to their racism, whenever they heard shots on the point, they generally looked the other way. Once, during a dispute between two gangs, shooting broke out, and instead of police coming in to break it up, they sealed off the area and let them shoot it out. Gun battle lasted 24 hours, and the police didn't return until the next day. At around 8 o'clock, I saw David Hilliard's car driving up, which I found surprising because we had only seen each other a couple of times before. As the car approached, I recognized Emery Douglas and George Murray. Everyone had strange looks on their faces that made it clear that something was wrong. Damn, Huey had been shot and captured. He had shown up at David's, wounded and bleeding heavily. There was real concern for his life, so David drove him to the hospital and left him on the steps, then drove straight to San Francisco to find me. He said Huey had asked him to ask me to help out in the aftermath, specifically dealing with the passenger who had been in Huey's car at the time of the shootout, Officer John Frey of the Oakland Police, who had been killed. There was also the problem of the guns Huey had stockpiled. I'll never understand why David didn't just bring the guns with him, but he hadn't. And I was obliged to go back into the area, get everything, and get back out safely. That might sound easy, but the shootout had occurred less than three hours before, and there was one policeman dead and one seriously wounded, so it was hot over in Oakland, to say the least. There was no time to go by the house and unload the guns I had on hand for the training, so I followed David back to Oakland with a trunk full of weapons. David took me into the backyard of a house that had a lot of weeds and a stack of old lumber in which he had stashed the gun. In his state of excitement, he couldn't remember exactly where the pistol was, and while we were looking, an elderly black woman came out of the house next door and asked what we were doing. David kept searching and didn't look up. She then said, if you don't come out of there, I'm going to call the police. I began to panic and told David to say something to the woman. When he rose up, she recognized him and calmed down. This was David's house, and she was his neighbor. On the one hand, I was relieved, but on the other, if the police were looking for the passenger who'd been with Huey, it was certain they wouldn't miss David's house, as both were known Panthers. Finally, he found the gun, and it continues from there. Just another N-word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox. And welcome back. Uh, let's see here, Jeff in San Francisco. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I was wondering, uh, what would be the best way for us to get unions back into the fold? Could we have a general strike one day, like a May Day, you know, where, let's say, you know. We have to change we, our laws, we, Jeff. The, the, so, the problem that we have right now is that 
is that the Supreme Court has, and, and, and numerous laws in various states, these so-called right-to-work laws, all coming out of uh, Taft-Hartley, you know, this, this uh, uh, amendment to the National Labor Relations Act that was passed in the 1950s, in 54, I think it was, that have really gutted uh, unions and made it much harder to organize unions and made it much easier to break unions. We need to change those laws. This is something that needs to be done at the level of government because the, the impediments to unions were put into place at the level of government, starting with the Reagan administration. Would that, uh, I mean, like, would that be at the state level or be the federal level? I mean, or both. it would be, or it'd be both. Maybe you could both. ask You've got about half. about their, you know. Yeah, yeah, about half the states have these so-called right-to-work laws that, uh, you know, really, really make it hard for unions to operate. And, uh, you know, in the other half of the states, uh, they're being pushed. And then, you know, of course, we've got the federal, you know, right-to-work law, the, the Taft-Hartley. So, you know, that's where we need to go. But but I'm with you. I'm Maybe. completely with you. Thank you for the call, Jeff. Oh, I'm sorry. Damn, this quarter-second delay keeps getting me. Mark in Las Vegas. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? A couple of things really quick. One, you made my point on the impeachment. He was impeached while still president. So that argument goes away. My analogy is a CEO. Now, a CEO commits a crime, and uh, he's going to be indicted for that and go to trial. And in the meantime, the company fires him. Well, he doesn't get off just because he's fired from a job. He's still going to be tried, and deservedly so. So I don't see why uh, that thing that we had for a president, sorry, hard for me to say his name, uh, should get off under that same idea, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm and, with you, and 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 he's as as Kenyatta pointed out, or or maybe the caller before him, um, Trump is now taking. They're reporting over at Raw Story right now that Trump is planning a national tour, a nationwide tour. Right. And oh, of course. You know, he's, he's going to make he, another quick yeah. point. Sure, go for uh, it. Can I, yeah, uh, the earlier caller uh, talking about vaccinations, um, I, I know in the minority community that they, they, they're very suspicious of the medical establishment because of the Tuskegee where the uh, African-American other gentlemen yes. were allowed to languish. But I would point out that it wasn't because of medical treatment that they ended up with the problems. They ended up with the problems because they were denied treatment. And in that well, actually, sense, they were lied to. They were away. told they were being treated. Right. That's they were told that they were being treated, but they were being given but placebos, essentially. That's correct. Right, but they weren't. The point is, is that they could have been treated properly. And it's the same thing with vaccinations. To deny getting a vaccination is to put yourself, your family, and your community at risk. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Mark. Mark, thank you for the call. I, I, I just did a really deep dive over the last six, eight months into the racist roots of our healthcare system in the United States. That book will be out at the end of the summer, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, and it is mind boggling. Anyhow, we'll be back. We're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican war on voting. The hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. 
On the Science Revolution this week is Dr. Michael Mann on the new climate war. He shares how fossil fuel companies have waged a 30-year campaign to deflect blame and responsibility and delay action on climate change. Dr. Eric Feigelding drops by, warning us the coronavirus could be a thermonuclear pandemic. He'll also talk about the new COVID variants and what he would do differently. Severine Fleming from Greenhorns is here about food security, regenerative agriculture, and the hidden value of local food. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? I just heard that last part that you were describing. Uh, and, and I just got, I feel like Republicans know better. And it's not that they don't know better. They know better, but they have to have somebody to blame. With regard to what? In regards to the minorities, people that don't look like them, you know, whatever they're going through, that's probably, you know, they think it's going to destroy mm-hmm. their lives. It's not that they don't know better. You, you know, they have common sense, but it's just that they need someone to blame, and and yeah. that's part of white supremacy as well. And it and it, it bothered me um, over the weekend that it feels like we're we falling into this Republican narrative that. You know, this was some sort of a riot. No, this was a treasonous um, act that they did. I don't even think that they, that we need to um, impeach Trump. I think we need to have a military tribunal, and we need to get every one of these people, especially Trump, for treason. And that's why I told you the other day, I, one of my questions was, are we giving the Joint Chiefs a, a, um, a pass? But that's not what I called for. My thing is this. Um... I've lived through Ronald Reagan. That's as far as my memory goes. And I've seen Democrats file in. I mean, file into his into the White House and come out, and then they vote with, with, with whatever Ronald Reagan wanted. Now, I don't know if these were Dixiecrats. I don't know if these was modern, um, um, you know, moderates. I don't know because I was, I was, you know, I was a little kid then. But from from that point on, it could be. From, from further back too, but from that point on, in my recognition, recognition, everything that the Republicans want when they get in power, there's no question. They're not changing anything. They're not capitulating unless if we revolt to the point where Republicans are among us too, and we're and you know they have to back down. So right yeah. now, the Democrats have promised they want they campaigned 2020. That they're going to make certain changes come hell or high water. Now, I'm very proud of what I've seen um, so far with um, President Biden this afternoon because he was, I guess, saying that the, the problems are so big that we can't back down from the number that we have, even though Republicans have. And, you know, we've tried to at least come together with them. There is no coming together for an intrans- intransigent group. These people are stuck where they are stuck because since, I guess, 2000 or even before that with George Bush, we've already we've all we've always just laid down and let them have their way. And I like to use a football analogy if I can. Usually when you see Tom Brady go back, he's one of the most successful quarterbacks to win the Super Bowls. He has an offensive line in front of him, some big guys to block. And he has to go back to a certain spot where he feels comfortable, where nobody will touch him. And he can make the passes and, and you know, he can win the game by, you know, just run, 
you know, running the offense the way he wants to. Well, since Ronald Reagan has been president, they've always had that leisure to just go back to their favorite spot and throw the ball. As far yeah. as I'm concerned, there's never been a Democrat that has had that leisure. So we need to also hold Biden administration and all these Democrats, Joe Manchin included, uh, Kristen Sinema. I called I called them both this week, and I let them know that you know the blood is on their hands practically if they don't get rid of this filibuster. But what I'm saying is the yeah. Democrats need to go far back, drop back, and Biden needs to find his sweet spot where he can throw that pass and throw that touchdown. And we can't let him get off the hook, and we can't let Democrats slide underneath and, you know, we, we don't get our way. This is America. Yeah, you, it's for the people. I voted. A lot of people voted. And the rich need to sit back right now and pay their fair share of taxes. Amen. You are singing my song, Charles. Thank you so much. Bruce in Petaluma, California. Hey, Bruce, what's up? Hi, um, thanks for taking my call. I have a kind of a petty thing I want to talk about, but it has something to do with that that's dangerous for the operators. It's in every city. You hear them every day of the year, especially in spring and summer. It's the gas-powered yard equipment. It's extremely mm-hmm. poisonous for the operators. It's noisy. It also it has uh, electronic machinery that could replace it. But yes. they, the operators don't want to use that because these machines keep running. And they're, they're really dangerous for the people that are running the machines. They're breathing this toxic, really awful air all day long. Right, and, 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 and they don't have catalytic converters, and so they're pumping out exhaust that's far more poisonous than, than sniffing the tailpipe of a car. You bet. They're, it's oil and gas mixture. It's like a little diesel engine running. And it's mm-hmm. totally un- unnecessary because there are electronic and battery-powered yard equipment, and that would increase, that would be jobs creating those uh, machineries, there would be sales money to be made. I mean, it, it's it's an industry just waiting to be unleashed. And here yeah, we are. I'm with you. Got to listen to these things and smell these things. And these. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear one going off just down the road from me right now. So I, yeah. I am totally with you, Bruce. Bruce, I got to yeah. run. But thank you for the call. Your point was well made. Our book club selection today is titled The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamail. The dedication of the book, this book is dedicated to the future generations of all species. Know that there were many of us who did what we could. This is from the introduction. The fall lasts long enough that I have time to watch the blue ice race upward, eons of time compressed into glacial ice flashing by in fractions of seconds. I assume I've fallen far enough that I've pulled my climbing partner, Sean, into the crevasse with me. This is what it's like to die in the mountains, a voice in my head tells me. Just as my mind completes that thought, the rope wrenches my climbing harness up. I bounce languidly up and down as the dynamic physics inherent in the rope play themselves out. Somehow, Sean has checked my fall while still on the surface of the glacier. I brush the snow and chunks of ice from my hair, arms, and chest and pull down the sleeves of my shirt. Finding my glacier glasses hanging from the pocket of my climbing bib, I tuck them away. I check myself for injuries and incredibly find none. Assessing my situation, I find there's no ice shelf nearby to ease the tension from the rope so Sean can begin setting up a pulley system to extract me. I look down. Nothing but blackness. 
I look at the wall of blue ice directly in front of me, take a deep breath, and peer up into the tiny hole into which I'd fallen when I'd punched through the snow bridge spanning the crevasse. The same bridge Sean had crossed without incident as we made our way up Alaska's Matanuska Glacier toward Mount Marcus Baker in the Chugach Range. You get to look down one more time, then that's it, I tell myself out loud. Again, there's only a black void yawning beneath me, swallowing everything, even sound. My stomach clenches. I remind myself to breathe. Sean, are you okay, I yell as I clamp my mechanical ascenders to the rope in preparation to climb up. Yeah, I'm all right, but I'm right on the edge, he calls back. I can't set an anchor to get out of the system, so don't ascend. We're going to have to wait for the other guys to catch up. Time passes. The onset of hyperthermia means I can't control my body from periodically shaking. To ignore my fear of dying, I gaze meditatively at the ice a few feet in front of me as I dangle. The miniature air pockets found in the whiter ice near the top of the glacier have long since been compressed, producing the mesmerizing beauty of centuries-old turquoise ice. Slightly deeper into the crevasse is ice that has been there since long before the Neanderthals. I hang suspended in silence, mindful not to move out of fear of dislodging Sean. Giving my full attention to the ice immediately within my vision, I focus on how the gently refracting light from above seems to penetrate and reflect off the perfectly smooth wall. Staring into it, the blue seems infinite. Despite the danger of my situation, the glacier's beauty calms me. Delicate snowflakes and their infinite possibilities of form land on mountainous terrain. Under its own weight, the snow is compressed into glaciers that scour and shape the face of the earth. Countless millions of tons of weight, aided by the force of gravity, push and pull these frozen rivers downhill, carving out cirques and troughs from uplifted geologic plates and sculpting the majestic heights of mountains that I have been drawn to since I was young. Eventually, our other two teammates arrive and work to extract Sean from his perch just six inches from the edge of the crevasse. All three of them set up a three-way pulley system. Laboriously, my teammates begin to haul me up, inches at a time, out of what nearly became my tomb. I continue to focus on the delicately shifting blades of blue in the ice as I draw closer to the surface, mesmerized by its raw beauty. My teammates pull me up to the lip of the crevasse. I repeatedly plunge the pick of my ice axe into the snow and haul myself out, never before as grateful for being on top of a glacier. I stand and gaze up at the mountain to the west, behind which the sun has just set. Snow plumes stream off one of its ridges, turned into ruddy red ribbons by the setting snow. Snowflakes flicker as they float into space. As relief floods my shivering body, I roar in gratitude and relief. Utterly overwhelmed by being alive and surrounded by the beauty of the mountain world, I hug each of my three climbing partners. Now safe, it sinks in how close to death I've been. That was Earth Day 2003. In hindsight, I believe the emotion I felt then stemmed in part from something else, a deeper consciousness that the ice that I had seen, which had existed for eons, was vanishing. Seven years of climbing in Alaska had provided me with a front row seat from where I could witness the dramatic impact of human-caused climate disruption. Each year we found the toe of the glacier had shriveled further. Each year for the annual early ice season festival on this glacier, we found ourselves hiking further up the crusty frozen mud left behind by rapidly retreating terminus. Each year the parking lot was moved closer to the glacier, only to be left further away as the ice withdrew. Even sections of Denali, which stands over 20,000 feet tall and is roughly 250 miles in the Arctic Circle, had undergone startling changes. The ice of its glaciers was disappearing quickly. Our planet is rapidly changing, and what we are witnessing is unlike anything that has occurred in nature or even geologic history. 
The heat-trapping nature of carbon dioxide and methane, both greenhouse gases, has been scientific fact for decades. And according to NASA, there is no question that increased levels of greenhouse gases must cause the Earth to warm in response. Evidence shows that greenhouse gas emissions are causing the Earth to warm ten times faster than it should. And the ramifications of this are being felt quite literally throughout the entire biosphere. The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamail. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.